Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org friendshipwithgod.org or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. My best friend's name was Mohammed Gozafi. <laughs> Gozafi is the same as Gaddafi, but he wasn't from Libya. He was from Tehran. He was an Iranian Muslim. And anyway, Mohammed Gozafi and I, we became best friends. And he and I would walk on the boardwalk there at Lake Geneva on Sunday. He used to work, wear a perfectly tailored suit. I used to make fun of him. And he used to walk like an Iranian aristocrat. He, he, like Charlie Chaplin, he would kind of like sort of shuffle his feet out like he walked like this, you know? <laughs> and, so, and I would copy him you know, as we'd walk there. And we laughed together. We hurt together. We wrote letters home, always with the same two words at the end of all of our letters, send money. And I went from having no friends to having a best friend. And at night, he used to come over to my room, and, and he'd tell me about this mountain community in Iran where the people lived to be 150 years old, and the wives did exactly what the husbands told them to do. And so we were planning a school. As soon as school was over, we were going there, and we were going to get married. We were going to marry into that community and live happily ever after in the mountains of Iran. See, that's where I'd be if I'm not here now. And we would laugh together. And and then something amazing happened. When the other guys saw that Mohammed Gozafi was my friend, then the other guys in the school, they started to talk with me. And they started to have lunch with me. And then they invited me to the pizza restaurant with the rest of the guys. Why was I accepted among the guys at the boarding school? Because of Mohammed Gozafi. Because by his example, he stepped out of the crowd and he said, I will not despise him because he is a Jew. Because Mohammed Gaddafi, in his example of being my friend, he said to the rest of the school, he's not Tom the despised Jew, he's Tom my best friend. He dared to step out of the crowd and become my friend. And when Mohammed Gaddafi did that, he set an example for the rest of the school. That's exactly what Boaz did. Here, he knew Ruth was the despised Moabitess. He knew that no one talked with Ruth because she was Ruth the despised Moabitess. He knew that no one sat with her at lunch because she was Ruth the despised Moabitess. But then, like Mohammed Gaddafi did for me in verse 8, when Boaz stepped out of the crowd and said, no, she's not Ruth the despised Moabitess. She's Ruth, my daughter. Then, just like Mohammed Gaddafi did for me, Boaz, verse 13, steps out of the crowd, and then Ruth says to Boaz, she said, let me find grace. Let me find favor in thy sight, my Lord. Thou hast comforted me, for thou hast spoken, what's the word? Friendly. He says, thou hast spoken friendly unto thine handmaid, though I be not like unto thine handmaidens. See, Ruth said to Boaz that he had spoken friendly to her. 
See, out in the field, Ruth had no friend, and Boaz had dared to step out and be that friend, and Boaz did that, and Boaz became an example to the others to follow and become the friend to Ruth. That is what you and I are called to do, you know, to become the friend to the friendless. Kids, you go to school, be a Boaz. Look for that kid that no one likes. Look for that kid that everyone picks on. Look for that kid that everyone bullies. Be a Boaz. Look for that kid and eat lunch. That, you know, that kid that's eating lunch alone. You know, that kid that has no friends. That kid is Ruth. That kid is Ruth the outcast and despised Moabitess. That kid is Ruth the Moabitess. Be a Boaz. Step out of the crowd. Dare to befriend that kid. Tell everyone that that kid is your friend. Stand up for your new friend. Defend him. See, that was Boaz. And that's so amazing in verse 12 is that Boaz is not in any way speaking to Ruth as a despised, hated Moabite. Boaz, Boaz has already distinguished himself to Ruth by talking to her with all the care as if she was his daughter. And what father doesn't jealously guard over his daughter and protect his daughter like a hawk? But now, what do we see Boaz doing for Ruth in verse 12? Beyond acting like a father, now Boaz is praying for Ruth. And this is a prayer. When Boaz says, the Lord recompense thy work and a full reward be given thee of the Lord. Boaz, he's now a priest. He's acting like a priest. He's interceding to God for Ruth. And Boaz is praying down blessings. Blessings on Ruth. What an example Boaz is for us to how to pray. Pray like a priest. Boaz is part of a kingdom of royal priests. With us in 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what Boaz, that's what he's doing here for Ruth. He was unto God a priest praying for Ruth. But there's something else that's very important that Boaz is doing when he prays for Ruth. Boaz is being a very important example before all the people of Bethlehem, before all the Jewish people in Bethlehem. He's changing, Boaz is changing their prejudice of all the Jewish people who are prejudiced against the Moabites. Boaz is showing by his own example how Ruth is not to be the despised Ruth, the Moabitess, but Ruth is to be honored and esteemed and held in very high position. Boaz is doing this by his example. And the Jewish people, they needed to have their prejudice abandoned to see Ruth in a different light of honor and esteem because of what she did and who she was. But how were the Jewish people to abandon their prejudice against Ruth, the Moabites, against the Moabites? How were the Jewish people going to come to honor Ruth and to greatly esteem Ruth, the Moabites? How were the Jewish people going to admire Ruth for her great works, for her sterling person? By Boaz. By Boaz. By Boaz showing by example the Jewish people by showing by his own example how Ruth was to be honored and held in great esteem. By Boaz speaking about the great works of Ruth, which he did. By Boaz speaking about the sterling character of Ruth. And when he did that, he changed the attitude of the Jewish people towards Ruth, who they despised, and he did it by his own example. Bravo, Boaz. Now, as we see this, we see how Boaz is our teacher. He's our example. He's teaching us how to evangelize the lost. 
Effective evangelism is to change the opinion of the lost as to who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what he did. Effective evangelism is to convert God-hating lost souls into God-worshiping saved souls. That's what effective evangelism is. How's that done? How's that done? By exactly how Boaz did that for the Jewish people. Lost people are prejudiced against the Lord Jesus Christ. And the most prejudiced people against the Lord Jesus Christ? Jewish people. Jewish people are just like all people, only more so. (laughs) The Jewish people need to abandon their prejudice against the Lord Jesus Christ and come to be converted, to honor him, to esteem him for his great works and his great person. So what's our goal in evangelism? What are we trying to accomplish why does God want to see a, what, what does God want to see a person convert to? What's the most effective evangelism? The most effective evangelism is not a recitation of a catechismic list of points. The most effective evangelism is when we see a lost person honor the Lord Jesus Christ and speak highly of his great works. After all, Our goal in evangelism is for people not to adopt a series of doctrines or beliefs, not to just adopt Christianity, not to join a church, not to call themselves Christians, not to just repeat a prayer of accepting Christ as Savior. Our goal in evangelism is to see lost people change and become three things that they are not. When we evangelize, we are looking for three things we want a lost person to become. First, our goal in evangelism is to see people become what the greatest commandment speaks about in Deuteronomy 6.5. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. Our goal in evangelism is to see people converted from loving themselves with all their heart, their soul, and their might, to loving Jehovah Jesus with all their heart and soul and might. And when the greatest commandment says, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and might, that means becoming a lover of God. And so our goal in evangelism is to make lovers of God, lovers of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't love a person you don't know about. We need to be talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Because only lovers of the Lord Jesus Christ can produce other lovers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, before we got married, Cheryl's mom told Cheryl, Cheryl, don't lose your head over this fellow. (laughs) The lost can tell if we are a lover of the Lord Jesus Christ by how much we talk about him and how much we honor and love him. The next two things we want a lost person to become are found in what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 4.10. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. See, when the Lord Jesus Christ said, It is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, that describes for us the second thing we want a lost person to become. Our goal in evangelism is to see a lost person become a worshiper of Jehovah Jesus. And when the Lord Jesus Christ said, And him only shalt thou serve, That's the third thing that we want a lost person to become. Our goal in evangelism is to make obeyers of the Lord Jesus Christ, as he said in Matthew 28, 20, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Those are the three things. 
In evangelism, we want a lost person to become a lover of the Lord Jesus Christ, a worshiper of the Lord Jesus Christ, an obeyer of the Lord Jesus Christ. How are we going to accomplish that goal? By seeing us, by they see us as lovers of him, seeing us as worshiping him, seeing us as obeying him. That's why it's so important to come to the 930 Breaking Your Bread service because that's the service that we tell the Lord, we love you. See, the 930 Breaking Your Bread service is a service in which we tell the Lord, we worship you. The 930 Breaking Your Bread service is a service in which we come saying, what language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend, for this, the elements, for this, thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end. That's also why it's important for us to use the full name of the Lord Jesus Christ rather than Jesus, or rather than Christ, or rather than Jesus Christ. The full name of the Lord Jesus Christ is a name really reserved for those who love him, who worship him, who obey him. Because to call the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, gives him a special place of honor and esteem. And when the lost see us loving him, worshiping him, honoring him, and esteeming the Lord Jesus Christ by our example, they have a better chance to abandon They're prejudiced toward the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Boaz did. That's what he did for the people of Bethlehem when he got them to abandon their prejudice against Ruth and change their opinion of the one who became the great-grandmother of Israel's greatest king, King David. So Boaz, before all the people, makes this announcement for the time of the suffering of Ruth was going to come to an end now. And God is going to recompense Ruth for all that she did for her mother-in-law. And God's going to give Ruth a full reward. But there's a little detail in what Boaz said that really shows how much it cost Ruth to lose her father and her mother and her homeland in order to take care of Naomi. That little detail is in the middle of verse 11. Boaz answered and said unto her, It hath been fully showed me all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the death of thy husband, and how thou hast left thy father and thy mother in the land of thy nativity and are come to a people which thou knowest not. See, the force of the cost to Ruth is seen when Boaz says this little detail, since the death of thine husband. See, what Boaz is emphasizing here is that in order to take care of Naomi, Ruth, you lost your father, you lost your mother, you lost your country, and when did you do all that, Ruth? Right after you lost your husband, since the death of thy husband. You know, something very strange happens to a person who loses a spouse. Last week I was speaking to a car salesman, a Lexus car salesman. He was telling me about how, how typical it is for new widows to come in and buy a new Lexus. And he was talking about this one man, he worked on the railroad and he died and the wife came in and, and uh, had an inheritance. She only had $2,000 a month as a pension, but she bought a $42,000 brand new Lexus ES because you kind of feel like you want something, you know? I mean, I remember when Cheryl died, a lady from our company came over to help me go through some of her stuff, and we we're going through the stuff, and, and she said, okay, well, now let's throw out these used tubes of lipstick and eye makeup or makeup, and I said, oh, no. <laughs> I said, oh, no, I don't want to lose anything right now. She kind of looks at me strange. She says, okay, I guess we're done. And uh, because when you lose a spouse, you're very sensitive about losing things. And when Boaz says, since the death of your husband, since the death of your husband, you lost your father, your mother, your land, your nativity. He's emphasizing how hard it was for Ruth to go from just losing your husband to now willingly lose your father, your mother, and your homeland. And so he states in verse 11 and 12, he goes right into the prayer. He says, that's on his mind, and he goes right into the prayer, and he says, Lord, I don't even want to speak about Ruth's connection with Israel. 
you know, I, I just want to speak about Ruth's connection to you because she has sacrificed everything for her mother-in-law. And right after she lost her husband, she has voluntarily lost her father and mother, her homeland. Lord, she deserves that recompense. Lord, she deserves this reward of God. And, and, and not a, just a partial reward, Lord, but a full reward. Lord, please look. Please look at how Ruth has brought nothing with her, has left everything behind. She suffered at the grave of her husband. She suffered at the leaving of the father and the mother and the homeland. And her sufferings didn't end when she got to Israel. But the reality was, is that all these sufferings that Ruth was going through was the greatest experience in Ruth's life. Because that's where she learned the faithfulness of God. And just this last week, Jean and I went to have lunch with a Hungarian Holocaust survivor who she explained to us, she was 16 years old when she was in Auschwitz and she said she danced for Dr. Mengele, the angel of death. And what she said, she said something I never heard before from, an, from a Holocaust survivor. She said, Auschwitz was the greatest experience in my life. And I said, why was Auschwitz the greatest experience in life? And she said, because that's where she learned not to hate. That's where she said she prayed for the first time. I asked her, what'd you pray? What was your prayer? And after a pause, and I wonder if she was going to break down or if I'd asked the wrong question, she looked at me and she said, I prayed for the Nazi guards. So, oh, I thought, you prayed for the Nazi guards? What did she just say? She's not a believer. And she prays for the Nazi guards? And I asked her what she meant. And she told me, she said, I learned how to feel sorry for the Nazi guards in the concentration camps. She said that she thought, you know, they can starve me, they can beat me, they can torture me, they can gas me, but they can't take my spirit away. And she continued to pray for her Nazi guards. And she learned her greatest lessons in Auschwitz because she learned how not to hate. And she learned to feel the pain of the Nazi guards. And she learned to care for the Nazi guards. And it was from those lessons of learning how to feel the pain of others, how to care for others, that made her become the clinical psychologist that she is, who at the age of 88 still counsels patients in her home in La Jolla and is a professor at UCSD, and inspired her daughter to become a clinical psychologist. By the way, our friendship got off to a very rocky start because she was telling me how she does swing dancing, and she's telling me how, how young she looks, as if I can't see her, much younger than her real age. You know, she, she's telling me she looks so young. Well, Jean had told me that she was 90 years old. And so at lunch, she said it was her birthday. And I said, Mazel Tov, you're 91 years old. <laughs> she gave me such a look and she said, I'm 88. <laughs> was a little rough. <laughs> but in Auschwitz, she learned to feel the pain of others and learned to care. And the first thing she said to me when I met her, she said, she'll tell me your story. So, you know, I thought, well, that's good. That's what I was waiting for anyway. But I became her patient. And she can't help but ask, you know, how do you hurt? And as I was giving her my testimony on how I came to the Lord Jesus Christ, she told me, you're not a sociopath. And I said, well, I was glad to hear that. All my life I worried whether I was a sociopath. Finally, I find out an expert tells me I'm not a sociopath. And when she told me how Auschwitz shaped her as a person by those three lessons, and then when she told me that, she put me to shame. She put me to shame as I thought to myself, you know, there's a lost Jewish woman and she's putting me to shame because I'm thinking to myself, have I learned those three lessons? Have I learned how not to hate? Have I learned how to feel pain of others, how to care for others? And at the end of lunch, 
while we were walking across the street, I told her, we're going to help each other. And she says, yes, we're going to help each other. And she already had. Muhammad Gozafi was a lost Muslim. And he knew how not to hate because I was a Jew. He knew how to feel my pain from being ostracized from everybody because I was a Jew. He knew how to care for me by becoming my friend. And those are the same three lessons she learned in Auschwitz. And those are the same three lessons that Boaz knew. He knew how to not hate the Moabites. He knew how to feel the pain of Ruth, the Moabitess. He knew how to care for Ruth, the Moabitess. And when Boaz spoke to Ruth, Ruth knew that Boaz knew. She knew. He knows how not to hate me as a Moabitess. He knows how to feel my pain. He knows how to care for me. And that's what she said in verse 13. Thou hast comforted me. See, Ruth said to Boaz, had comforted her, and Boaz never could have comforted Ruth unless he didn't hate her, unless he felt her pain, unless he cared for her. And Ruth says to Boaz, you comforted me. And for the word for comfort, she uses nacham. She says, you nacham. You comforted me, which is where the word Noah comes from. He shall comfort us in Genesis 5, 29. He called his name Noah, saying the same shall comfort us. People out there, they're hurting. People are hurting. They need comfort. There's no greater comfort than the comfort of the gospel. There's no greater comfort than the comfort the gospel message brings of sins forgiven. That's the gospel message of comfort that God calls us to give to his people. He says in in Isaiah 40, verse 1, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith the Lord. Speak ye comfortably, to Jerusalem and cry out to her. Their warfare is accomplished. Her iniquity is pardoned. See, in the English, it looks like these verses are, it looks like God is saying, comfort three times. Comfort ye, comfort ye, speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem. In the Hebrew, it's only twice. In the Hebrew, it's only the first two that are nacham, comfort. See, but the second verse where it says, speak ye comfortably, that's not the word comfort. That's not the word nacham. That's the word lev, lev, heart. So it really reads, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, see, saith the Lord. Speak ye to the heart of Jerusalem. You can't comfort someone unless you speak to their heart. And actually, those are the same words that Ruth used in verse 13. Ruth said, thou hast comforted me. She used this Hebrew word, nacham, for comfort. But when she said, thou hast spoken friendly, it's not the word friendly, it's the word heart. Same thing like in Isaiah 40. So what she's really saying in verse 13, thou hast comforted me for that thou hast spoken to my heart. She knew that he had spoke to her heart. And what did Ruth mean when she said, you comforted me by speaking to my heart? Ruth meant that Boaz had not spoken to her as others did, as Ruth the Moabitess, but he didn't even speak to her as distantly related part of the family. At this point, we have to realize that Boaz is speaking, and keep in mind, Boaz knows that what Ruth doesn't know. Boaz knows that he's related to her deceased husband. She doesn't know it at this point. But at this point, she doesn't know that. Now, she's going to learn that later from Naomi when she goes back, and, and we'll see that. But at this point, in her first encounter, she doesn't know she's part of his family. And what's remarkable is that Boaz doesn't tell her. He doesn't tell, you know, he just, you know, you and I are kind of kin, we're sort of related. He doesn't say that. He realizes, no, but Boaz knows who she is. Why doesn't he tell her that he's part of her family? Because there's something closer that Boaz and Ruth have in common. And he sees, you know what? 
We're both under the same wings. In verse 12, the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust, he says, we're wing pals. <laughs> he says, that makes us closer than family tie. He says, we're under the same feathers. That makes us closer than any family tie. And that's the way it is for us who've come to the Lord Jesus Christ. We, under his wings, trusting in him, we're closer than we are to our own family. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the example that Boaz is to us this morning and help us to to be like him and to not hate and to learn to feel and to care. In Jesus' name, amen. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. Sunday Night Church is back. Join Friendship with God Bible teacher Tom Cantor at the new Friendship with God Fellowship every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California. Join us early each Sunday at 4.30 p.m. for food and fellowship with Sunday evening services to follow at 5.30 p.m. Watch Tom Cantor and the service on YouTube Live located on the Friendship with God website. Enjoy encouraging teaching from our Bible teacher Tom Cantor in a relaxed and family-friendly atmosphere. Sunday Night Church is back, so join us at the Friendship with God Fellowship every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum at 10946 Woodside Avenue North in Santee, California. For more information, call us at 800-247-3051, 1-800-247-3051, or visit friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org for the Friendship with God Fellowship.